Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Atlanta Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Good morning, everyone. I'm Joey Klein, your host of Tech Talk. Hope everyone's having a nice Friday. Uh, As always, I have three fantastic guests with me today. We're going to go around and introduce them real quick. First, we've got Connor Kimball, who is in marketing at Avoxy. Hey there. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Uh, Baha Zidane, co-founder, CEO of Azalea Health. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And Robin Gregg, CEO of RoadSync. Good morning. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, so what, what I like about this show is we have three very different industries represented here. Avoxy, we're going to talk about uh, telecom and uh, call center software. Azalea Health, we're going to focus on healthcare. And RoadSync is all about logistics. So, Connor... We always go alphabetical, and for company, we're going to start with you. Sounds good. Okay. So you're in marketing at Avoxy, which means that you are supremely interested in presenting Avoxy uh, in the best light and getting their messaging out there. So you're the best guy to really talk to about what Avoxy does, right? Fair enough. Okay. Well, so give give us the, uh, the headline. What does Avoxy do? So the short summary for right now would be that... Historically, we are a telecom company that basically sells business phone numbers in any part of the world that you might have customers or employees or anybody who needs to um, be able to communicate with your company. But what we are moving into now is the call center software, contact center space, where we've kind of actually been in that for a long time with a, um older product, but we've been pouring... Uh, money into a new product over the last couple of years, and that is launching. Um, you know, th- this month actually, and we. So now we're moving more into the, the contact center space with people like Vonage, Five Nine, and Eight by Eight. Okay, so are, are we the first ones to get a scoop on the new product? Yes. Interesting. What can you tell us? I can tell you that it is awesome. It is very, very good looking, and it is. Um, it lets people do a lot of the necessary, you know, business phone functions that, um, you know, they've always needed to, but at a much better price point than most. So would you describe this as a pivot or is this simply a additional product line that Avoxy offers? I would say it's much more of an expansion. Yeah. Because anybody who needs contact, um, you know, center software also obviously needs the phone numbers. So while we've been awesome with the phone numbers for a long time, now we're actually moving into the space where we actually supply the, you know, the software and the systems that you plug your numbers into instead of just the numbers. Okay. So take me through a client experience um, with how your business started out. Okay. So I don't know. I'm assuming that you would serve like, let's say a cruise line. Okay, or a travel uh, travel agency. Okay, so I am travel agency X, and I'm a client of Avoxy. How am I interacting with you, and what are you providing to my business? Well, so depending on what the needs are, the you know, let's take a use case of your travel line, and you want to be able to advertise for potential customers around the world. At, le- at the very least, in your top markets, you want people to be able to call you and reach a sales agent or reach a uh, you know support agent. So you might have not just phone numbers for your company, wherever your base, whether it be in the Caribbean or um, the U.S. or Europe, 
you might also want phone numbers in Australia for potential vacationers and Singapore and Japan, et cetera. Okay. And so with the new product line, okay, that same company can use software that Avoxy provides for their call center employees. Yes. Okay. And so why – obviously this is software that exists right now. You have competitors out there. Why is this something that Avoxy felt was a need for them to – whether it's add more features, improve upon what's already out there? Like what's, what's better about this than what your competitors are doing? First, because the contact center space is growing very fast regardless right now. Um, but primarily what we saw is our opening to offer something a little bit different and unique to the market is that when it comes to actual, you know, everybody needs at the very minimum some of these basic features, which would be like, you know, if you ever called your cable company or um, any, any large company really, you know, you get a menu with, you know, press one for this, press two for that. You know, that's a software provider um, segue into that and then along with that that same provider is usually handling any call recordings there are they're handling any call cues that the agents are in so that way you know you can press one to get a call back and you know you get placed in right order so that that market is growing regardless but in order to actually get even those basic features there really weren't many providers offering a very all, all the good-looking products that were easy to use and intuitive were very expensive, extremely expensive. And so the way we've built ours is that um, you can ramp up to a enterprise level, um, you know, depending on your needs. But also, if you're just somebody who needs the, that, you know, that press one, press two, you know, called an IVR menu and some basic call queuing, you can get it at a fraction of the price that it used to be. Okay. Okay. So that so that makes sense. So is the reason why this business is growing quickly? Just because of the way that we live our lives, we are interacting with human beings less. We are relying more on, um, you know, AI and machine learning to fill the services in call centers that maybe humans don't or employers don't want them to. Um, take me through. Am I right? Am I wrong? Am I half right? Well, yeah, half right. I would say because it it is both. Like that is becoming its own animal in itself. AI and um. And, you know, actually using uh, predictive analytics to connect people, you know, as quickly and efficiently as possible. But also in reverse where you're actually seeing, especially in um, countries like, you know, with that have been through this for a while now with like, like the U.S., you're seeing this, uh, this demand again to actually speak to people. Like, you know, the people prefer to speak to somebody instead of being sent into, you know, we would call it IVR hell, the, uh, you know, just constantly getting messages around. So... Even if you're trying to focus on connecting customers with an actual live agent, then you want to make sure you're doing that efficiently and connecting them with people who are actually going to fill whatever it is that they need. Okay. Okay. So this is for a contact service provider that is using more humans for interfacing um, or potentially more machines for interfacing. It could be for either. It could be either, and it's and you know we're sort of talking at the enterprise level now, but um, but every business, even um, you know if you have a phone and if you have a f individual phone number for each employee, you're using some type of software like this. Okay, it might be a very simple one, but every business is using some kind of software for this. So my my office in Buckhead, we have you know let's call it 400 employees, right? We have 
400 different phone numbers there. And then, of course, thousands more across the world. They have to use, even though it's not a contact center, they have to use something like this. Yeah, there's there's no way that you guys aren't already using somebody. Interesting. Okay. So who is your typical buyer within an organization? So for the numbers product line of the business, it could be depending on, which is one reason why that's actually really interesting is because you know phone numbers are something that it puts us in the market for the solo entrepreneur in any given country in the world, as well as the largest corporations you can um, name. So if it's at a very large corporation, usually we're seeing people like the IT managers, marketing managers, um, yeah, fo- folks in that like mid to mid, that mid-level management. But at um, the smaller companies, you know, all the time we're speaking with the actual founders or the CEOs or the presidents. Um, setting up their either first or second round of phone numbers as they expand. Okay, so it, it just kind of depends on at what point the organization is. Obviously, you know, as is typical, smaller companies, CEO is still generally making decisions. Bigger ones, it's relocated to a certain department. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, how did you get involved with Avoxy? So I was very lucky that um, my, uh, you know, I, I had family working in this industry um, already. And through that, I met a, uh, pretty popular Atlanta entrepreneur around here. His name's uh, Wayne Kellum. And he, um, really opened my eyes to sort of not just this particular niche industry itself, but, um, he took me to, uh, the Atlanta tech ball on the, uh, was it? It's run by, um, Forget the name of the nonprofit that runs it now, but the uh, uh, there's a those is it this like the tag for yes, event? Yes, yes, tag. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Um, they uh, when I went there, I, I sort of that's when I first learned when I was about uh, 20 years old how big the Atlanta tech market is, and since then I've been you know very interested. In, I was you know straight out of college, I was looking to do something in the um, you know in Atlanta and in tech, but. You know, it just so happened that I lucked out and uh, found a, uh, a similar industry that my, um, you know, my, my mom worked in and my Wayne worked in and a lot of those folks did. So we, we were actually talking about this before the show that you kind of went back and forth between Atlanta and Los Angeles as a kid. And, um, you know, Atlanta was just culturally kind of a clear winner for you. You know, that early knowledge combined with what you have seen um, in regards to how robust our technology scene is, like, what do you think we're doing right? I mean, like, why is Atlanta firing on all cylinders right now? So a little bit of it is just the momentum. So once, you know, that train starts going, it's much easier to keep it going faster and faster when it, com- when it comes to, you know, growing an, uh, an economy in a concentrated area. And the fact that Atlanta has the massive workforce that it does, that is qualified, and it's a good, you know, it's kind of the hub of the South where, um, you know, if people are moving to the South, you know, they think of Atlanta. They, they think, you know, it's, it's become very culturally relevant around the rest of the country as well. So it's very easy to recruit from out of state, but you really don't need to anymore because you have so many great colleges here. You have a really um, good young workforce here. But the main thing out of any is that I would say the really favorable tax laws. 
just in general, it's much easier to do business based in Atlanta than it is in the other, um, you know, tech giants like Silicon Valley or uh, New York. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I think that that certainly helps. Um, I think that we've also done, and I'd say, you know, sort of a collective we um, as a metro area have done a really great job of making Atlanta a very livable place. Um, that I think maybe 15 years ago, you might have seen more Georgia Tech grads kind of um, leaving for a Seattle or a New York or a Boston or a San Francisco. And I think there's way more reason, just simply culturally way of life to want to stay in Atlanta now. Um, but, you know, we have to look at the good and the bad, right? Not everything is rosy. I mean, have you seen anything in your you know travels throughout uh, Atlanta's technology community that you think we could be doing better? Well, you know, you'll, you'll always want to, you know, fix things like, you know, the, the famous Atlanta traffic, you know, we don't want to let that keep getting out of hand or, um, you know, there, like you said, there, there, there's always certain things, but to touch on what you're alluding to there is, uh, yeah, the, the affordability of living here, the amount of safe, convenient, you know, neighborhoods there are around here where you can, you know, live the, uh, suburbia, you know, suburbia life and have a good plot of land and be in good schools. And then 15 minutes later, be at work. Um, that is definitely a massive, massive benefit to being around here. Agreed. Okay. So let's get back to the business. Um, you guys recently rained, raised a round of money. Mm. How much did you raise? $10 million. Okay. And what are you going to do with that $10 million? We are, well, one, we hired, um, developers first and foremost. So the main thing was, you know, getting this product as functional and smooth as possible because that that just makes everything else easy. Um, but beyond that, it is, but yeah, we, we um, expanded our marketing team. We've expanded our um, support team because with this new product, it comes many, many, many more layers of technical knowledge necessary to have in the company. But um, but primarily, it's straight into development. Okay, and you know, long term, what is the goal here? Are you looking to compete with some of the you know large telecom giants that we kind of touched on at the the top of the interview? For me personally, I would love to do that. Yes, that 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 is um you know I know I know our CEO and our president have those thoughts in mind, but they are also very open to adjusting. So constantly figuring out where we really fit best in the market um, is a big part of the reason why they are so successful. But long term, yeah, I, I would love to be, you know, the next Twilio or 8x8 or Ring Central. I think um, I want to I want to touch real quick on culture for a second because you know we talked about this. I forget if it was on the phone or over email, but you know you recently rose through the ranks pretty quickly from intern to basically leading demand generation, um, and that is it's unique. It, it obviously speaks to you, but I think it also speaks to what is possible at an entrepreneurial organization. Why do you think Avoxy is set up in such a way to? allow for that and to not have, you know, bureaucracy that maybe makes someone wait, wait their chance, their turn a little bit more? Well, so first is what you mentioned for any company in this field or that size where you just don't have those layers of bureaucracy. And, you know, even folks who are relatively new can really get their, their hands dirty and, and get in there and, you know, get in the weeds fast um, and try things out without waiting, you know, being hampered down. But Specifically, uh, we 
me, I'm very lucky that the leadership we have specifically, you know, our CEO and our president are extremely focused on internal employee growth. And even if that means, um, you know, because because everybody's different, but, you know, because some folks don't necessarily want to constantly have more and more and more on their plate. But what they do still keep focused on is they want to make sure everybody is doing something that they're interested in and nobody just gets stuck in a rut and uh, constantly um, just making sure people are taking on new things whenever it looks like they might be um, having a lag and and focusing on growing people internally as opposed to constantly just hiring outside management. Well, so that, that's actually a, a good segue. You guys have a ton of open positions on your website right now. So are you primarily looking to promote from within or just based upon the number of bodies you need? You know, you're, you're mostly looking externally for those new roles, at least. So there's certain, um, so depending on the position, so entry level, of course, you know, it's constantly just, you know, trying to keep up with the growth. Um, and that, so that'll so always be that. When it comes to actually um, hiring, let's say at a uh, mid-manager, senior manager level, those are some serious decisions are made internally um, on is there somebody inside a company who we can train to be that person soon or who is already potentially ready for that? And they, nine times out of 10, they will defer to trying to elevate somebody who they already have up as opposed to just constantly looking within. But so there are certain roles where you just need somebody with cer- certain level of experience in a very specific skill set. Yeah, but but it is it is nice to um, be able to promote from within to kind of reward that loyalty. Oh, it's, you know, it's incredibly um, motivating and satisfying, you know, and especially, you know, I'll, I'll speak on my end is that uh, it makes me much more fired up to go into work every day today because I know how much I've already grown there. And now that, and, and it just is a constant reminder of, you know, that can keep going. Yeah. The, uh, you know, the, the, the time equity that you put in means something it's recognized mm-hmm. and it's a very easy, uh, you know, for me, it's a, it's a great recruitment tool. Too. Yeah, totally. Um, so one of the last things I want to touch upon, I think some people listening to this, their interaction with the functions and industries that we're talking about can be somewhat negative, right? They either, you know, have a bad experience waiting on hold for Comcast or their health insurance, or they're getting, um, you know, robocalled, uh, you know, which they, uh, you know, see all these different numbers popping up on their phones. What do you think is the biggest misconception that people listening to this show right now probably have about the industry you serve that is just completely wrong or that you'd like to change their minds if you could? Mm. So there's two interesting points there. But, uh, the, the first and real quick one is on the robocalls. Um, that is a testament to certain phone number providers not doing their due diligence. So at Avox, you know, we have a very intensive vetting process for any new customer who wants a number where, you know, we, we, we really put in the time to make sure that this is a very legitimate business and it's going to be used for legitimate reasons. Um, and that's not just because we also hate robocalls, but it's because there are penalties in place. So um, if you, 
if you start selling, let's say, you know, certain, if I, if we sell a whole bunch of, um, you know, United Kingdom phone numbers to scammers who then use them to, you know, spam the population there, um, those carriers who let us use those connections with those numbers, uh, are not happy and they cut us off. So we, so there, there's a hefty, um, you know, built in process for that. And that's why you see so many of these numbers companies that are kind of fly by night and, um, and they, and they don't stay around too long, but, uh, but so, so on the robocall side, that's just those companies not doing their due diligence. And then on the, um, negative experience side is I, I would agree. And I think that's actually one of our easiest marketing strategies is because that that's a testament to one, maybe certain technologies aren't quite there yet. Mm-hmm. And two, you know, companies need to use the technology to their best ability. So it's a, um, you know, like if I were trying to sell to, let's say Comcast, then you could, you know, I, I would love to build them guides on how to actually build an IVR strategy that doesn't just route your customers in these circles and, you know, make them put in their personal information once and then get directed to a new menu that requires it the exact same information again, let's say. Um, that that's a, uh, th- that's a flaw in the way that that software is set up. I got it. Okay, so that's a it's an area that where Voxy can provide value. Absolutely, got it. Fantastic, uh, Connor. If anyone listening wants to learn more about you and Voxy, what what can they do? Who do they talk to? Check out our uh, LinkedIn for um, open positions and our careers page at avoxy.com for um, open positions and events and any more information you can want. And it might be obvious, but just to make sure, how do we spell Avoxy? A V O X I. Perfect. Connor, thanks a lot for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Baja with Azalea Health. How you doing? Good morning. I'm enjoying uh, uh, Connor's uh, point views and uh, knowledge on, on that side of business. Well, awesome. you know, this, this show should be for those who listen to it, but uh, hopefully it's interesting for those who have to, you know, sit by and wait their turn to be interviewed as well. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I'm going to go through um, a little timeline here of Azalea Health accomplishments. Okay. So July 2016, you raise a Series B. For ten and a half million dollars, October twenty seventeen, you are you buy Prognosis Innovation Healthcare. July twenty eighteen, um, you've got a partnership that allows your customers to submit public health information, and most recently, November twenty eighteen, you individually um, were best uh, were forty under forty for the Atlanta Business Chronicle. Lots of stuff. Uh, hence, we've re- been really busy. Really busy, right? So what? What, what is it about you? What is it about Azalea Health that you've had this recent track record of success? Well, uh, you know, over, w- w- Azalea been in business for 11 years. And you look around and think about over this time what made us successful. And um, it's definitely the people first. You know, we have a great team. And, uh, and uh, the people at Azalea really care about the industry we're in. And the culture. Azalea's culture is very um, innovative, uh, very humble, and very aggressive when it comes to getting things done. And uh, the last thing I would say is the problem and the mission of what we're trying to solve. Um, And that is a key for us because we see that there is a huge need for uh, the healthcare industry to automate and uh, bring cloud technology to the marketplace. So... 
where those are the key things that continue to make us successful over the last 11 years. Well, so, uh, you know, automation of technology and healthcare is nothing new, right? There's a lot yep. of folks out there trying to do this, but let's back up a little bit and talk about your secret sauce. You are specifically focusing on rural communities. Correct. So what Azalea does is uh, we provide electronic health record and revenue cycle management software and tools and services to the rural market. Uh, the rural market is the most challenging market. Uh, however, it's sizable. It's one-fifth of the U.S. population lives in a rural place. Uh, it's almost four-fifths of the U.S. land mass is rural. And uh, we feel that uh, it, since it's most challenging, that's where we can uh, drive most success. Um, so we've been focused on that rural market. So did you initially come to the problem from a healthcare perspective or a rural perspective? Both. So um, uh, I started my career as an intern at a medical laboratory company in rural Georgia. It's actually in Valdosta, Georgia. Uh, I graduated with a computer science degree from Valdosta State University. Uh, worked with this company for a few years and saw that there is a need for true cloud environment in, in the healthcare. And quite frankly, the, the healthcare uh, was frustrating to me because... I'm seeing uh, advancements and innovation in consumer products and fintech. Uh, however, in the health IT, it was a little bit evident to be we're behind. So um, we took uh, um, the chance on ourselves, found two good friends that wanted to take the risk with me. And uh, we said, hey, let's start a health IT company and let's base it in Valdosta, Georgia. And... Uh, Let's see what happens. And 11 years later, we're about 200 employees, and we have office in Houston, uh, an office in Atlanta, office in Macon, Georgia, and, and sizable office in Valdosta. So you came at this because you were living in this community. You were interacting with it firsthand and kind of Correct. seeing what the need was. But – Okay, so when you when you look at the rural healthcare landscape, I'm sure that you know wh whether you are deeply interested in this or you just read the news, you know you probably see about the low number of providers that are in rural communities um, yep. and just the problems, especially based upon distances in rural communities of accessing healthcare. But is the problem from a technological standpoint that a solution didn't exist that was tailored to the rural market, or well, there's there's three, right? Is it is it that? Is it that no one is marketing to them, or is it that the technologies that existed were cost prohibitive for those communities? It's actually all three. Uh, we The rural market challenges are completely different than the urban market. Um, and, you know, if you look, uh, I, I, in the last uh, few years, I've visited many hospitals in rural America, and the set of challenges that they have, uh, one, they don't have talent sometimes in, in, you know, in, in a town with a population of 50,000, it's hard for them to find network administrators and CIOs and CTOs and chief security officers. Uh, second part of it, uh, it's hard for them. Uh, it's, they have a population challenge. Uh, they don't have enough population to keep uh, major lines of business open. So for example, in, in, in places where uh, they cannot afford a surgeon. Uh, so we saw those challenges as opportunities for cloud solutions uh, and opportunities for us to navigate that market without having um, the complexity that, uh, that, that 
basically they can't handle the complexity that urban market can handle. Mm-hmm. But let's talk about the technology itself. So sure. why is healthcare automation technology that currently exists, mm-hmm. okay, that is being used in urban markets, why is that not applicable to rural community hospitals? It's very expensive, one. Second, uh, it should even if you look at the major health systems in the United States, they're using vendors that uh, are not cloud-based. Simple as that. Uh, uh, you know, you look at some major hospital systems, uh, they actually have data uh, uh, warehouses and, and, and actually um, server farms within the borders of their hospital. Uh, and this is mind-boggling still. And until now, uh, major health systems, when they buy health IT solutions, is mostly hosted at that location. And uh, we feel that bring you know the, the rural market can um, innovate ahead of that group of urban hospitals. And also, uh, the cost right now, the healthcare industry, when it comes to electronic health records in an urban market, it reminds me of the early days in the 1990s and early 2000s when it comes to ERP implementations. Um, it costs hundreds of millions of dollars. I've, you know, major health systems here in Atlanta, it takes them five years to implement the technology. Five years? Five years. Unbelievable. Uh, it's unbelievable. And uh, at a cost of hundreds of millions of dollars, again, so it's, it's, it's uh, we're still, there's a group of companies um, hijacking uh, the innovation in this market, and uh, we're here to disrupt it and bring um, innovative cloud solutions that are uh, inexpensive, but as or what we call it, priced right for for the industry we're in, and um, bring the innovation to the to the rural market. Okay, so we've been talking a lot about the rural market, but of course, you just gave a litany of reasons why not all is well in urban markets. In in addition to that, okay. Sure. So, look, as an entrepreneur and especially as a co-founder, you know you you want to grow, but you don't want to grow to the point where you cannot handle what is happening around you. Definitely. But it sounds to me like you just made a case that your technology can solve urban issues as well. We do. And uh, not to say that we don't have customers in Atlanta and Miami and New York and Chicago and L.A., but uh, that's not what where our core focus. As okay. a matter of fact, uh, we have a, a hospital in downtown L.A. that uses Azalea's uh, electronic health record and, and, and products. Uh, but our focus for when it comes to an outbound outreach is the rural market. And uh, we feel if we solve the rural market needs, it's actually given that the urban market will also benefit from it. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Um, let's talk about telemedicine. Sure. Can you define the term for those who are uninitiated? Sure. It's basically providing care remotely. If, if you want to do it in a simple fashion. And telemedicine, it can be do, done over uh, uh, phone, over uh, uh, video chat, uh, over even messaging, simple messaging. So as long as you're providing uh, care or providing advice uh, remotely. And telehealth and telemedicine in the rural market is is in is um, a great case study. And there's so much need for telemedicine. Uh, we look at uh, some of the cities in, in rural Georgia, for example. They have no easy access to a pediatric neurosurgeon, for example. However, it's available in Emory. Uh, many neurosurgeons in Emory, especially speci- you know, specify or specialize in, in pediatric, they're, they're available. So 
But how how is uh, this going to help is by enabling the patient and a provider in rural market to connect with another provider in an urban uh, health system or urban um, hospital and be able to basically do the consult without the constant going back and forth from rural Georgia to Atlanta and and add more to the traffic in Atlanta. Okay. And so your software enables that interaction. Correct. Okay. How does it do that? So we do that in, in multiple ways. Uh, so uh, our cloud solution has a patient portal. So the patients can request uh, a telehealth visit with their own provider. Also within the platform, a provider in rural Georgia can request a collaborative visit with another specialist within uh, a different health system so that the rural provider and the rural patient can connect with a specialist in um, somewhere where they can uh, talk about the, the case that they have. And that's how, we, how and, but what's unique about our offering in the telehealth, it's tightly integrated within the scheduler and tightly integrated within the platform itself. So enables the patient basically within their patient portal where they can make a payment to the provider, they can look at their past appointments, future appointments, request appointments, they look at their medical history, and also the provider as they're documenting their encounter with the patient the telehealth visit is part of that workflow. And that's what's unique about Azalea's offering. So I want to go back to, um, we we talked about some of the issues that you're solving. Um, One of them, it sounds like it's a cost issue from the perspective of having to travel back and forth, both from a provider and patient perspective. Um, You know, we hear all the time about the massive percentage of GDP that healthcare takes up in this country. I sure. think the last number was 17%. Yeah, it's close to 18%. Okay. So is is this Azalea's own in a way as, you know, sort of the a small piece of a large puzzle of trying to drive down some of those costs? Uh, it's one piece. We have uh, another piece of it. Uh, but what's happening in when it comes to driving uh, the cost, what's driving the cost up is uh, the lack of sharing of information in the healthcare. Um, I'll give you an example. My uh, mother was sick in uh, Orlando, and we she lives in Orlando, and part of um, we went to Orlando Health. And not to knock on Orlando Health, they have the best doctors, which of whom one of them is my brother. So it's a fine health system. However, when it comes to admitting my mother at the ER or she had an MRI a week before in the inpatient setting, the data sharing was not there. So they had to request another MRI at a $5,000 in cost to her insurance. And those are the kind of things that's driving up the cost of healthcare because of the lack of information sharing between providers and between the patients and providers and providers to provider. And uh, with that, uh, we decided to tackle um, building out our own private health information exchange. So as we go to a rural health uh, system, uh, a health system, let's say, in, in the rural market consists of a um, hospital and few clinics and an urgent care. We can deploy our health information exchange where it would allow the patient to have their medical record move through that continuum of care from an urgent care to the inpatient, back to the primary care, back to the specialist, back to the patient at home, and and 
all of that done electronically. So, so that's great, right? But what we're talking about is on a very limited level here, okay? And so, I, you know, I guess when I when I think of the country as a whole, sure. okay, how do we get to a point? I mean, look, because you know we're talking about hospitals that are on different systems. Correct. We're talking about private insurance, Absolutely. some public insurance. You know, how do you get to a point where there is some? I don't know, for lack of a better term, national database like the DMV where you can just look people up and share that information? Well, we've made in the last, uh, what I would say, eight years, uh, a huge uh, momentum forward. So uh, just remember about uh, eight or nine years ago, only about 10 or 15 percent of physicians have an electronic health record. Even 10 years ago, was that low of a number? It was low. That was very, very low. Uh, ten years ago, when you go to your uh, physicians, and probably some face it right now, they still go get their charts and they flip through paper and and they look at your uh, past medications that way. And um, uh, so we, the country now is north of ninety percent that of physicians and healthcare providers leverage electronic health records. So we made the first step forward, okay. which is having the providers leverage electronic health record. Now, the population of patients who use electronic health record or look at their uh, health record electronically, they're still small. It's probably between 5 to 10%. So we still have a lot of work to do there. But once we, once we have that data electronically, now the next step is to share it between different entities. We have some uh, interoperability tools that the industry has been pushing but it's not enough. It's not moving enough. We see, we find that still health systems uh, and healthcare IT vendors, they still think competitively of themselves. So they, you know, they still, we still have not gotten in healthcare that sharing is caring. So we're, we're, we're working on that. Uh, And, um, but at core, the healthcare industry is, is information. It's information about your lab, information about your CT scan, it's information about your condition, it's information. So the the healthcare industry is information heavy. And when we get to a point where this information moves fluidly between the patients and providers and different health systems, that's when we'll be able to gain some serious traction. So... I'm I'm assuming the answer to this next question is no, but I'm very curious about it. Sure. So if you look at, I would say, probably all 50 states in this country, okay, you have a number of very large cities, and then you have a huge swath of rural population. And that um, is represented in our legislators. Correct. And, you know, ever, you know, you see it in Georgia as well, right? There are bills for things like rural broadband, yep. um, for, you know, better health care in rural areas. Does Azalea ever get involved with any sort of legislative activities that are designed to help rural areas? Absolutely. Uh, however, not directly. We, we don't have a, a hired lobbyist. No. Uh, however, we do that through education. Okay. Um, uh, Azalea Health, uh, we're on our third uh, rural health IT studies and survey. Uh, we focused on the survey uh, specifically on the rural market, which is the only one in the industry. And we share this information with our legislators and our uh, politicians. But we see the main um, need to have companies involved with the legislative side. Because if you look in the past few years, uh, recently uh, Governor Kemp has uh, 
found a solution around expanding Medicaid through, um, uh, I forgot the term that the waivers, the waivers. Yep, yeah. yeah, thank you, the Medicare Medicaid waivers. And I think that's a very good step forward. However, we lost traction in the last few years by not expanding or having any ideas or solutions like the Medicaid waivers. Um, In other states, of course, it's a similar thing where there's some states who expanded Medicaid and some of the rural market, um, rural patients have benefited from that. So it's it's really important for uh, the legislative side to understand the challenges that's happening in the rural market. You're the experts out there doing the research on what needs to happen that you can then bring to your legislators to get them up to speed and educated. We try to do that. Absolutely. Um, So you, you mentioned you have offices in a number of different cities. Some of them are big cities. Some of them are small cities. Started the company in Valdosta, um, now in Atlanta. And so I'm going to pose the same question to you as I did to Connor. What is Atlanta doing right for technology businesses and where do we need improvement? Yeah, so what we're doing right is uh, we have an ecosystem that is really um, very uh, collaborative, an ecosystem that is uh, caring about technology. Um, uh, For example, we have great educational institutions. We have great health systems. We have great technology companies. We have great chamber of commerce. We have... Also, what attracted Azalea to headquarters in here and move, uh, moving myself here to, to Atlanta is uh, the focus on health IT as an industry. Uh, historically, the Chamber of Commerce, TAG, and other few associations, the, Chamber, um, uh, the, the Georgia's Chamber of Commerce, they decided that Atlanta can be and should be and will be um, health IT capital. And we, they spend a lot of resources and a lot of marketing dollars and a lot of um, uh, work to make sure Atlanta bubbles to the top when it comes to health IT. So we're, we're leveraging that. Also, to, uh, Atlanta, besides the, the plethora of talent uh, in Atlanta, that it's affordable. And with the, the, with the airport here, it makes it really easy for us to grow and reach uh, the majority of, uh, of our customers. Now, the challenges, you know, um, every city has its own challenges. Connor touched on it, which which is, uh, you know, some of the challenges around traffic. But I'll set that aside and, and think about some of the challenges uh, startups have and technology companies have. Uh, we still see a lot of technology companies going to the West Coast and the Northeast to raise capital. Uh, I think you know, mo- m- you know, w- we're moving up in Atlanta when it comes to the check size, um, but you're still not getting uh, funded by you know north of fifty million dollars from a venture fund, venture capital fund, or private equity fund f- based in Atlanta. Uh, the other side of it also, uh, we're still not taking as much risk in Atlanta as uh, as we take. Um, take it in other places. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've I've been told no, no, no in Atlanta, and we go to Old West, and we get yes. So, uh, and here we are. We're growing at fifty percent organically year over year. And um, for us, we see that in uh, for Atlanta to compete with Boston, New York, and LA, we need to continue to uh, take bets on our entrepreneurs and take. Uh, and help support them financially and and um, other and, and through resources as well. So my my armchair psychiatrist um, diagnosis of why that is the case 
is that this is a city in which, and it's changing now, especially in the last decade, but that previous to that, you know, most of the high net worth individuals here made their money either through being, you know, corporate uh, Fortune 500 executives yep. or via real estate. Yep. Um, and this is, of course, coming from someone who is in real estate. One of the reasons that I'm drawn to real estate is because I deal very well in what I can touch and see and feel. That is a very different type of investment than technology. Absolutely. And so I just think that the type of personalities that had the money to write checks just don't think that way. Um, and it's definitely changed in the past decade, but what we need are more companies, more exits, more checks, more people in Definitely. that ecosystem that think that way. Absolutely. Um, okay, so what? Uh, and anyone who's listening to this that wants to learn more about you and Azalea Health, what do they do? Simply go to azaleahealth.com, A-Z-A-L-E-A health.com. Great. Thanks a lot, Baha. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's okay. been an honor to be on your program. Yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Robin Gregg, RoadSync, how are you? I'm doing great. Excellent. So, um, you know, when we're talking about more early stage companies, what I find fascinating is the journey to where you are right now. And so I go back to um, a couple years ago, you used to have a different name. It was My Lumper. Okay. And so I'm very curious as to one, well, okay, I, I don't know, but of course I'm asking for uh, the, the audience here, what is a lumper and what necessitated the change in the business to change to the name RoadSync? I'd be happy to talk about that. Um, Lumper has been a really fun conversation starter for me for a while now. <laughs> um, so a lumper is really unique to the transportation industry. It's actually um, almost slang for the um, the people who unload trucks at usually at food distribution centers. Um, it is industry convention to have someone at that facility unload the truck on behalf of the truck driver. And that person who unloads the truck is called a lumper. Uh, the service itself is called lumping. And one of the things that the company originally did was made it easier for truck drivers to pay lumpers their fees, which had been previously paper-based. Uh, the transportation industry is largely a paper-based industry. They are using cash, checks, lots of paperwork to conduct transactions. And what the company's original vision was to uh, digitize those transactions, starting with the lumper transaction. Um, why we changed our name is because that's one use case. Um, and when you look at it at $700 billion industry, there's a lot of other mobile businesses that need to transact with truck drivers, carriers, and freight brokers and are doing that through paper. And so we were really limiting ourselves by calling ourselves something that was just sort of indicating one use case. Um, plus, you know, um, it was usually uh, somewhat of a giggle-inducing name sometimes, I mean, depending on who you're having a conversation with. Um, and so we really wanted something that was more reflective of the broad aspirations we had to become the financial platform and to change how money is moved and managed throughout the transportation industry. And that's why we renamed ourselves RoadSync. It definitely rolls off the tongue a bit easier than my lumber. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. And so we talked about that one use case on which you were founded. Talk to me about the additional use cases which you are now serving. Yeah. So we work pretty much anywhere that people have to uh, transact with truck drivers, uh, carriers, and freight brokers, um, and where paper was primarily being used previously. So our customers today include 
uh, include lumpers, um, but also warehouses who might charge truck drivers late fees if they miss their scheduled appointment, um, things like pallets, restacking. There's lots of weird services that happen at warehouses. Um, truck drivers also are commonly paying for maintenance and repairs, so breakdown service. So we are serving heavy truck repair, maintenance, and towing vendors. And one of the things that we've been exploring, too, is that we've done a lot of research. Um, the trucking industry is dominated by pretty small trucking companies. Over 90% of trucking companies have six or fewer drivers. And so, um, and you're talking about an industry that has half a million participants. And we did some research on them, and over 60% of them were using paper invoices to, to collect payment. And they were collecting payment 60 to 70% of the time through paper check. And this is a cash-strapped business, and so they're complaining about payment timing. Oh, I'm not getting paid fast enough. What can I do to accelerate that? And they're using paper, and so you can kind of see that the the, the processes that they're using does not reflect did not reflect the urgency with which people were trying to collect payment. Okay, so when when our listeners are driving along 285 and they see names like JB Hunt and Swift yep. on the road, okay, that represents in terms of number of companies in the business, a tiny percentage, even though they are massive players, the vast majority are mom and pop organizations that are probably not financially sophisticated, That's or at correct. least technologically sophisticated. And very much underserved from yeah. a technology standpoint. That is that is correct. Um, you know, There are obviously giant players in the industry like J.B. Hunt, Swift, Old Dominion. Um, but, you know, there are also hundreds of thousands of small players in this industry as well. I and mean, the industry is almost bifurcated with these giant players at one end and then small fragmented players on the other. Well, I, I almost I almost feel like that is the uh, headline of business in the modern era. Right. True. In, yep. in, in the age of M&A um, on steroids, really, it's there's really not much in the middle anymore. Yep. Well, so, OK, your team, I would assume, cannot go and sell to every single mom and pop out there who has six trucks or less. So how do you get the message out to them about your services? Yeah, well, so it's a little bit of the magic of our initial use case. So our initial use case are um, are these lumpers and freight and warehouses. And most of these warehouses that we're serving today are actually warehouse groups. So we have customers that have 10 to over 100 warehouses um, that are using our platform to accept payment. Um, and we've branded that experience. So truck drivers and owner operators who roll in to make payments can actually see that this facility that's pretty credible and well-known is using RoadSync to accept and process payments. Got it. And so we think over time that will lend us with a great deal of credibility in the market, um, way more than if we had just tried to like reach truck drivers or, or folks directly through uh, deploying a mobile app or, you know, some other, other thing. Um, and so, um, you know, that, that's, that's sort of how we're thinking about one of the ways that we'll reach them. Um, but obviously there are lots of opportunities, um, even just in the segments we currently are in, um, you would be surprised by how much spend. We think there's over $50 billion in spend in the use cases that we're serving today, which are the warehouse, freight handling, and heavy truck repair and maintenance markets. Um, so we're already in a pretty big space, an active space that we can, we can continue to grow in, even if we don't serve those other players. So let, let's talk about warehouses for a second, okay? Mm-hmm. This, this is where my real estate ears perk up, okay? Um, so... Mondelez, let's take Mondelez, yep. right? Big food services company, right? They have warehouses all over the place, um, certainly in Georgia. So 
is the initial interaction between RoadSync and a potential customer, you go to Mondelez and say, you should use our payments platform for drivers who are coming into your warehouses delivering. That's correct. And what we do is we usually reach out to a head of operations or a head of finance, and we ask them if they're taking, um, if they're collecting accessorial fees, which is sort of the name for some of these payments, Mm -hmm. um, are you collecting them real time at your facilities? Um, Some of them aren't. I mean, if you have a pretty consolidated shipping base, you might just bill these people them directly. But if you have lots of different people coming in, you may be collecting those real time because otherwise you may never collect them. Um, And so we would talk to them and and offer our solution as a way to provide visibility, efficiency, um, and, you know, because paper payment collection isn't fast. I mean, you know, we used to have clients who were trying to figure out how to make change for, you know, $200 because the, the fee was 165 and who has fives and they're running around trying to oh make change God. in a warehouse while they're trying to really get people out of that unloading door yeah. and back on the road. Because driver capacity right now is um, very limited um, and, uh, you know, changes in regulation have put even more pressure on driver capacity. And, you know, uh, consumers uh, demands on goods. I mean, everybody wants their stuff right away. And so the ecosystem's under a lot of pressure to become more and more efficient. And so um, the, the, every process that these ha- they have at these facilities needs to reflect that. And really trying to squeeze out even just minutes is important to them. Do you have any sort of estimate for the amount of m- missed payments based upon an inefficient system in whether it's a particular state, particular uh, geography that companies are having to write off because they're not able to collect? Yeah, we don't know. Um, It's really hard to tell and to track. I mean, because you basically have, you could have a clerk, an unloading clerk who's sitting at a facility and it's the middle of the night and the truck driver doesn't have a way to pay their late fee or their unloading fee. And, you know, if the guy's really mad at him, is that clerk really going to stand firm and make him pay? Or are they going to be like, all right, just go, you know? Um, so we don't know. I mean, we think it's, you know, definitely percentage points. Um, but it's it's a very difficult number to quantify. Yeah. I mean, it's like it's floating out there somewhere in the ether and you are not going to know. But it's you do this, you, you know, you multiply this across the entire industry. That sounds like an enormous sum of money. Yeah, it's real money to our clients. And so that's the pitch, right? It's uh, it's efficiency. It's improved revenue collection. And, you know, really, there's no reason why collecting payments um, for a warehouse facility or for a repair and tow truck provider should be any harder than it is for a hot dog vendor or a popsicle vendor to collect payments from a consumer. I mean, you know, there's really not a reason to have that. Those experiences be wildly different, but yet today they are. Okay. So you are a, basically you're a fintech company for the logistics industry. Correct. Okay. Um, We have heard a lot about fintech in Atlanta and how we have been uh, nicknamed Transaction Alley and something like 70% of all, you know, payments come through Atlanta. Why? What What is it about this city and what is it about the infrastructure that's been built here that this is such a unique place for this subset of the technology industry to flourish? Gosh, that's a great question. I, you know, I don't know. Um, you know, I think uh, uh, at some point the, the sort of – we just kind of had critical mass. But I think for us now – it's just it has become more and more of a fintech city because of pay, the legacy payment processors mm-hmm. being here. Um, there is just 
tons and tons of talent here um, that you can get access to. Uh, NCR is here. First Data has meaningful operations here. Elevon is here. Uh, you know, just the list of people that are based here is enormous. And so it's created these giant uh, talent pools that really fueled fintech innovation. And so I do think you see a spike in fintech-related technology companies, mm -hmm. um, and it's because of that talent. I, I don't really know how it began, but I know that that's a little bit of why it's continuing. It's like it could have been one of those things that was simply organic at the time. There was a couple, and then it just became a thing and now it's solidified. Yeah, I I really don't know. I think it's an interesting I think it's an interesting question. Um I've only been here for 9 years. Um but uh but I'm completely blown away by how great of a fintech town it is. I moved here because it was a great fintech town and I thought it would be some place where I could flourish from a career standpoint and really have lots of opportunity and I have not been disappointed. So let, let's talk about your own story. So you were at Fleet Corps before you came on to RoadSync. Yes. Yeah. So Fleet Corps is almost a $20 billion market cap company here in Atlanta that absolutely no one seems to have heard about, although I think that's starting to change. Um, I was very fortunate. Um, I actually came out of an, a startup that we, we sold to Amex in early 2010 called Revolution Money. It was backed by Steve Case. I was in Florida. Um, I was actually based in Tampa Bay. And um, when Amex was going to buy the business, they wanted to move us up to um, up to New York. And I was like, no, nah, I don't I like being warm and I like a lower cost of living. But, you know, maybe Tampa Bay is not where it is for me. And I just targeted Atlanta specifically, worked with a fellow, um, found a fellow Capital One alum who was at Fleet Corps pre-IPO. At the time, they were private equity backed and um, thought, you know, Fleet Cards, I'll be all right. You know, we'll see how interesting that is. And I just really loved commercial payments. And that company ended up being a rocket ship. It's very acquisitive. I learned a lot about... Um, scaling up distribution through sales. I learned a lot about pricing strategy. I, it, it was just a tremendous place to be. Um, it was a really, really fascinating seven-year ride. Well, and and so what's interesting is, um, you know, a lot of CEOs that I get on the show, they are founders or co-founders. Mm -hmm. You are a non-founder CEO. Yep. You were tapped to join RoadSync. And so I'm very curious as to how your leadership and decision-making are informed by your past big company experience and the fact that you, you know, have a little bit of an outside view, not being the original founder. Yeah, I, I think I occupy a weird spot. Um, it is really unusual for an early seed stage company to replace their management. Um, so we're, we're a little bit different. Um, you know, I was very, very early in the company. We probably only had five or six people at that time. Um, so I occupy this weird spot. I mean, most people who have uh, you know, have CEOs dropped in. It happens more in like post A, post B stage. And um, so I've been with the company at a very, very early stage. I was responsible for the rebranding and the pivot. Um, and, and so it's, uh, I don't know. I mean, I think, I think it's, a, it's, it's definitely different than starting at zero, but, um, but it, it, it was still required. It did require me to still take something from a really from just the spark and come up with a vision for it. Um, you know, I've had to learn a lot about um, how to um, think about, 
be a little bit more creative about how to scale the business, how to add to the team, how to uh, you know test things quickly. Um, but I, but you know this wasn't my first startup. Uh, this was my second. Um, so I had learned a lot of those things before. And so it's not like I'm kind of a lifetime corporate person. Um, I also say that Fleet Corps was a pretty um, entrepreneurial place. We were pretty flatly run, very lean teams. And so um, we were expected to do, do a lot with a little. And so I had already become accustomed to that. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure it was applying a lot of those lessons just on a more intimate scale. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I'm always interested in how location affects culture and business growth. And so you are currently located at ATDC. Um, you're not the first person who's come on the show to be at ATDC, but I'd love to hear a little bit about how that ecosystem has uh, been important for RoadSync. I absolutely have loved being at ATDC. I think that every early stage company should try to get into that program and think about being based there. First of all, you're located on the uh, the campus of Georgia Tech, which is tremendous, and to have access to those resources is amazing. Um, you know, also the support system, uh, not just the staff, because ATDC does obviously have a full time staff, uh, but they also have uh, great CEOs who have done the same things that I'm trying to do, and so. I think one of the best things about the ATD experience has been the network of CEOs that I can tap into for things as simple as who are you using for your health insurance all the way up to, you know, how do you get your head in the game about running, you know, raising a venture capital round and going to Silicon Valley. Um, so it's, it's just great to have those resources and to be located there. Um, I would highly recommend it to anyone. Not surprised to hear the glowing recommendation. Um, okay, so we talked about warehouses. We talked about truckers. Any other particular use cases that you have now or that you're developing that people listening should um, be cognizant of? Yeah, our big one right now is the the maintenance space. Hmm. Um, so heavy truck repair, maintenance, and towing. Um, it's actually a pretty specialized market, and there are vendors who specifically focus on that. And, and their problem is... Um, they're going to have to, they don't have a constant flow of business, right? So if a truck breaks down in Minneapolis, it might be the first time they broke down in Minneapolis. And so they're using a vendor for the first time and the repairs are really expensive. And so they have to figure out a way, uh, the vendor has to figure out a way to collect payment from this truck driver, um, quickly, um, in a guaranteed payment form in a way that won't be disputed later, mm-hmm. right? So there's a lot of documentation that goes back and forth. Hey, do you authorize this work? Do you know how much this is going to cost? Do you approve that the work is going to happen? Are you satisfied with the work? All of that is was being documented via paper um, previously. And so we actually create a digital experience around that transaction, mm. which is pretty cool. Um, and this is a market that has uh, tens of thousands of, of specialized vendors throughout the country. So it's a, it's a pretty big use case. There's also uh, transacting with, with the truck driving um, in the, the trucking company ecosystem. Well, look, I mean, very dissimilar what we were talking um, about with Baja, there is a ton of opportunity in taking, uh, you know, industries that have not really embraced the digital age and breaking them into the light. Yeah, I think a lot of what Baja resonated with me, uh, I think the fact that we can offer these folks a cloud-based solution has been game-changing, right? So they don't have to make investment in hardware. They don't have to have a piece of point-of-sale equipment, um, they really can use something that's easy for them. So it's basically 
you know, a mobile point of sale plus payment experience that that's easy for them to use. And so I think that um, it is in many ways similar to kind of the, what Baha had described. Yeah. Um, you, uh, when we were talking about uh, the great things about being at ATDC, you talked about um, advice about raising capital. Is that in uh, the next 12 to 18 months of RoadSync's future? Sure. I mean, we raised a seed round uh, March of last year. Um, that was raised mostly outside of Atlanta, not surprisingly, I guess, given our earlier conversation. Um, but, you know, we're starting to think about what's next. Um, I am very excited about where we're headed. We have greatly expanded our sales team recently, um, and we're really starting to gain a lot of momentum in our core markets. We think there's a ton of opportunity. Like I said, this is a giant space, and all of it is paper-based, and so we are um, really thinking about how fast we could grow and are thinking about putting some more gas in the system. Very exciting. Okay, so if uh, anyone wants to get in touch with you and learn more about RoadSync, how do they do that? Uh, we are at RoadSync.com, S-Y-N-C.com, um, and would love to, to hear from people. Great. Thank you to all my guests. We're going to go over them again. Connor Kimball from Avoxy. Baha Zidane from Azalea Health and Robin Gregg from RoadSync. Have a good evening, guys. Mm-hmm.